Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. A lot can happen in three years. Like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage that lasts nearly three years in some states. Learn more at UH1.com. Fiber is a key nutrient for our gut to function optimally. Yet in the UK, just 9% of adults consume the recommended intake of 30 grams per day. While whole grain pasta, oats, berries and nuts are all great sources, the reality is most of us still are not getting enough. There is strong evidence that eating plenty of fibre is associated with a lower risk of heart disease, stroke, type 2 diabetes and even bowel cancer. Choosing foods of fibre also helps make us feel fuller, as well as aiding digestion and preventing constipation. Bimuno is a high fibre supplement that can be taken if you are struggling to achieve your daily fibre target through food. It's a taste-free powder that travels through your digestive system intact until it reaches your colon, where it encourages the growth of naturally occurring good gut bacteria. When taken daily, it can increase levels of good gut bacteria within just seven days. Visit bimuno.com and enter the code RETRITION at checkout to get 10% off. Hello, and thank you so much for tuning in to Food for Thought, a podcast on a mission to equip you with all the evidence-based advice you need to live and breathe a healthy lifestyle. I'm Rhiannon Lambert, registered nutritionist, best-selling author of Renourish, A Simple Way to Eat Well, and founder of Retrition, London's leading private nutrition clinic. In each episode, I'll be joined by special guests, all of whom can be considered authoritative voices in health, so that together we can learn fact from fiction and empower the healthiest and happiest versions of ourselves with trusted expert advice. Let's face it, talking about poo and anything having to do with our bowels can be slightly uncomfortable. But as off-putting as the topic can be, tuning into what you actually see in the toilet from the colour, shape, size and smell, it can all tell you an awful lot about what's going on with your health. So joining me to help understand why it's one of the best clues to our overall health is Kevin Whelan, Professor of Dietetics and Head of Nutritional Sciences at King's College London. Hello, Kevin. Hi there. Thank you so much for being here. Um, I think when it comes to poo, is there a universally accepted standard for what's considered normal? (laughs) So um, that's a... Sounds like a really simple question that I'm going to reply with a really complex answer. So um, I guess, you know, if you asked any member of the public what would be normal, they would tell you, well, it's how often I go. Mm. But because we never sit around and discuss it with each other, we probably don't know what everyone else does. And so therefore what what really is normal. Um, so we have to, we've got some pretty good studies which we can quote to uh, show what the general population do. Um, and so studies in the US and studies in the UK show that about 90% of people um, go between three times a week and between three t- and to three times a day. So that's an enormous range. So, you know, so if you think that can be anything from um, someone who goes on Monday, Wednesday and Saturday to somebody who goes at 8 a.m., 12 um, p.m. and and 6 in the evening. And that's an enormous range. And all of those would be considered completely normal and completely healthy. And that's just looking at stool frequency. There's also stool consistency, so how firm or loose it should be. Um, And again, there's a broad spectrum of that. It's really difficult to talk about stool consistency because, you know, what do we compare it with? (laughs) So there are all sorts of validated um, stool charts and things. And uh, what we'd usually compare it to is something called the Bristol Stool Form Scale. Um, And the most common consistencies of stools are what we call types 3, 4 and 5. Um, and they are um, solid, um, but they but they're not hard, um, and they're certainly not runny. So, and then the 
the the final um, aspect of um, stool output, um, which is considered healthy, is the volume of it, the quantity that we, that we pass every day. And again, this is a really difficult thing because obviously not many people weigh their stools. But no. When, but actually, I've done loads of those experiments yeah. where we, we do collect stools from people for seven days and we, and we weigh them. Um, and we know that in the UK, um, the average person passes about 100 grams of stool per day. That's a little bit higher in men than it is in women um, because men eat a little bit more fibre and because women have sex hormones, which means that transit through their gut is a bit Mm. slower and so they pass a little bit less. Um, So um, the only thing I would say is on the stool quantity front is that although it's about 100 grams in the UK, in parts, other parts of the world, and I'm, I'm particularly thinking of um, some places in Central Africa, stool output can can be like 300, 400 grams per day. So much higher, three, four times higher than in, in the UK. And that's because their diet is much, much higher in um, unrefined carbohydrates. So things like fibre and roughage and, and things like that. So they have much higher um, stool weight. And actually stool weight is a really important feature of gut health. Yeah. Um, in fact, compared to stool frequency and stool consistency, like nobody wants to go to the toilet too often or too infrequently. We don't want diarrhea or constipation. But other than that, st- frequency and consistency, you know, are not really um, associated with health. The thing that's really associated with health is stool weight. Um, and so, for example, we know that um, uh, having a higher stool weight um, because you eat more fibre is really associated with a lower risk of colorectal cancer, so bowel right. cancer. Mm. And we know that the heavier your stool, because of the more fibre you're eating, the less, less bowel cancer you're likely to get in your life. So look out for h- how much you're passing every day. Gosh, I mean, my mind is going into overdrive there. <laughs> <laughs> I'm completely hooked already on the first question. I, it just makes me think about, yeah, the different diets in the world. Um, the fact that, like you said at the very beginning, we do not sit around a table and discuss anything like this it's so taboo isn't it and obviously poo can reveal a lot about what's going on with our gut health but why then is gut health so crucial to our overall health so you've said the weight Mm -hmm. yeah so uh, that's a really really nice question because if you'd have asked me that 10 or 20 years ago, um, I just said, well, gut health is about having a healthy gut. Mm-hmm. It's about not getting, um, it's not about not getting bowel cancer. It's about uh, not getting um, irritable bowel syndrome. It's about not getting constipation or diarrhea. Yeah. That's what I would have said. But, you know, in the last 10 years, loads and loads of research has been published showing that the health of our bowel really impacts virtually every other organ in the body. Um, so if we just look at some examples, we know, for example, that um, the health of your bowel can really, really impact um, mental health. Mm. Um, and studies that try to link the health of your bowel with the health of another organ are really, really difficult to do. Okay. And so, so I, I, I don't want to get too sciencey and talk too much about the study design and the experiments, but it is important to understand we're not completely there in terms of understanding everything about the connection between the bowel and the brain. Mm. Um, But we do know some things. Mm. So, for example, uh, we know that people with depression have a different microbiome, so the bacteria in their gut, um, than do people without depression. But, of course, there could be lots and lots of reasons for that. So we're not sure that that's a cause. But actually, if you look at animal experiments, we know that if you take um, the microbiome from somebody who is depressed, you insert it into a mouse that's a normal mouse, that mouse will develop signs of being depressed. Um, so it won't run around its cage very much. It will just mm. sit and uh, sit and not go out. And so therefore, the microbiome is probably having a causative effect now. I don't think the bowel and um, the microbiome are the only causes of mental illness. Certainly not. Mm. There are lots and lots and lots of other really, really important things. So before we start getting carried away and start saying, (laughs) oh, we just need to take lots of probiotics and prebiotics and lots of fibre and we'll fight depression. I think we need to think about all of those other things as well. So really excited to talk about other aspects of um, of uh, diet and how they can impact um, our, our mental health. Well, it's so important, isn't it? Because like you said, I think a lot of people just want a very quick magic fix very quickly, don't they? And like you've just said, it's never that simple. That's absolutely right. But 
but to be honest, that's what makes diet so exciting for us. Yes. That that um, you know, if it were about taking one magic pill, mm. everyone would be doing it, and it yeah. wouldn't be such an exciting discipline. So we know that there are all different aspects of the diet yeah. um, that are really, really important, not just for gut health, but also for brain health. Yeah. Um, and um, you know, a magic bullet just doesn't exist. No, but it's fascinating. You've mentioned obviously mental health. That I think a lot of people are talking about it a lot more now. So, mm. and the fact that ten years ago you didn't have any of this research. Mm. So is there a lot of research at the moment that's going on into these areas then? Absolutely. So using the example of um, of mental health, mm. there, are, there are loads um, of studies currently underway investigating the connection between the two. Mm. I'll just use some examples. In, in the last 10 years, there have been 23 different clinical trials of um, of probiotics, so you know, taking live bacterial supplements um, to see whether they impact um, depression or not, and you know, the short answer is, in general, overall, yes, they do help, um, but. It's quite a small effect size, so it doesn't have a massive impact, um, but it does have a significant impact. And also, it's a way for somebody who has mental illness, or, you know, certainly has depression, to be able to start taking control of some some aspects. But it's not the only thing. People need to take care of their diet. They need to consider exercise and their yeah. overall general health Well, even as their well. immunity, isn't that linked to their gut as well? Yeah. So, I mean, I've so far really only talked about the link between the gut and the, the brain, but mm. the gut and the immune system is just an enormous area that's really really exciting in fact um, when when a baby's born and really doesn't have much of a microbiome in its gut at all um, what happens is that um, the the first time uh, a baby experiences bacteria in the environment is 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 during birth. So yes. when, when when the baby's born, yeah. um, it gets it gets bacteria um, yeah. from the vaginal canal yeah. from its mum, and um, and then that lives in its bowel for a bit, and then it develops its microbiome in its wow. gut, and that starts to signal to the immune system, yeah. because it's fascinating to me that. Um, if we all got infected with salmonella, mm -hmm. our bodies would go crazy. We'd start having a massive reaction to it. We'd start having lots of diarrhea to get yeah. rid of oh, it. Oh, dear. I know it'd be really, really awful. Yeah, it's an awful thing to think of. <laughs> so why is it that we can, if we have a bacteria like salmonella, we fight a reaction against it? Mm. And yet inside our gut, there are loads of bacteria already. And yet we're not having a reaction to those. And that all starts to occur in the first few days of a baby's life. So um, in those early days, the, the baby's body starts to learn these bacteria are not harmful to me. I know I'm not to mount a massive immune response to them. Mm. And in fact, um, I know lots of people will be interested in this hygiene hypothesis, yeah. this fact that we know that children who grow up in rural areas, on farms. and Making mud pies. Uh, making mud pies mm -hmm. and really getting dirty as kids. <laughs> Actually, they're much less likely to have immune um, dysfunction. Mm. So they're much less likely to have asthma or eczema and things like that. Mm. Um, whereas children who um, aren't exposed to bacteria um, for um, in, in, in the early years uh, because they're in a perfectly clean environment, in a, you know, everything they touch is sterilised. Yeah. Actually, they're much more likely to get some yeah. of these diseases. And so there's really been a backlash against um, against some of those issues of cleanliness and hygiene because we're not teaching our immune system what's safe and what's unsafe. Well, it's fascinating because I don't think that's something that new mums are taught. Oh. I don't think it's probably on the NHS curriculum for parents to be. And actually, of course, a mother's diet and environment massively impacts, like you just said, those first few days. And well, we know that 90% of us in the UK anyway fail to get the recommended 30 grams of fibre, don't we, with the diet? Mm -hmm. So can you explain why it's fibre then that is so good for gut health? OK, so if if you had to pin me down and say, what's the... What, What's the one um, aspect of diet that I think is most important for bowel health? Um, it would definitely be fibre. Mm. Um, and it's really a magical ingredient because um, it's not one compound. So we, we use this term fibre all the time, but we're talking about a, a huge different range of different chemicals um, that, are, that are present in our, in our diet. So 
They can be fibres that are short chains of carbohydrates or long chains of carbohydrates, ones that our body can um, ferment, so the bacteria in our gut can ferment, and others that the bacteria in our gut can't ferment. Um, and there are ones that are viscous, so they form a, a gel in the body. Mm. And all of these characteristics of these different fibres um, have a different impact on our health. Um, so, for example... Um, a, a viscous fibre, so something like pectin that um, forms a gel in the body. When you can we get pectin from an apple. Can't that's you? right. So pectin yeah. might be um, might be in an apple, but lots lots of other fruits as well. And you can buy supplements of pectin as well. Then um, w- when we um, consume that in our diet, it, it forms a, a viscous gel. And um, what can happen is it slows down the rate of um, emptying of the stomach. So things move slower um, out of our stomach. Now you might wonder why that is that a good thing or a bad thing. Well, actually, it's quite helpful because what it means is it releases nutrients at a slower uh, rate into the bloodstream. So what happens is um, if there are lots of sugars and carbohydrates in a, in a meal, they will be released slower into the bloodstream. So you won't mm. get these peaks of, um, of blood sugars, um, which is a good thing. And, yeah. and, that, and that's one thing we want. And that's from one type of fibre. Um, and yet another type of fibre, for example, one that's fermentable, what that means is that we don't digest it, but the microbiome mm. in our gut do. Um, and when they digest it, uh, they start releasing um, special fatty acids called short-chain fatty mm. acids. But basically, these are just really, really important chemicals that are the byproducts of, of this process um, that are really, really healthy for our gut. So these really keep our gut lining alive. They signal to our brain as well. Um, and you only get those when you eat fermentable fibres. Yes. And then finally, um, one fibres that aren't fermentable, what happens to those is they literally just, you eat them, and this might be something like, you know, uh, a wheat bran or something that, um, that where there's not too much fermentation mm. of it, maybe a little bit. Um, that can travel all the way down the gut and really, really not get um, not get fermented at all. So things like bran, for example. Bit of roughage. Eat, yeah, if you eat <laughs> 10 grams of bran, tens of grams of bran will come out of the other end. But it doesn't mean it's not had a, a good effect on you. No. Because what it will do is, is, is uh, you know, is draw water into the bowel so that, you know, you're your motions are much easier to pass. And so so you asked me, uh, you know, is fibre good for you? And the exciting (laughs) thing is, well, it is because, like, depending on what its um, characteristics are, it will have loads of different types of benefits um, on our health. So it's a really great nutrient. What an incredible comprehensive answer there. I mean, (laughs) that's really... I hope it also explains to any of you listening that nutrition and your your body are so much more complex than they're made out to be. And if if you were to very simplistically say, what does 30 grams of fibre look like, Kevin? I mean, how can we tell our listeners, try and get some of those magical things and get 30 grams? What would it be? Okay, great. So um, you're right. The the key target, well, the UK government recommends we have uh, 30 grams of fibre every day. So first of all, let's look where in our diet do we currently get most fibre from? Mm. And and the answer to that is we get most of our fibre, about 20% of our fibre comes from vegetables um, because they're a really rich source. Um, And in fact, on average, a portion of vegetables, so an 80 gram portion Mm. of, of vegetables, Different vegetables contain different amounts, but on average, they have about two and a half grams of fibre in. Um, if you think about that, two and a half grams just for <laughs> one portion, yeah. and yet we need to have 30. That's, I know. that's quite a lot. It is. And people are not getting their five a day. They're not one getting is their five grams. a day. And, what, and, and, you know, and, and one of those portions is only giving you two and a half mm. grams. Um, compare that to fruit. Fruit actually has even less fibrin in general. Um, so it has about half the amount um, of fibrin. It doesn't mean they're not not as good for you because they contain lots of other things as well. Lots of vitamins and minerals guys, but not as much fibre. Exactly, but not as much fibre. So we get most of our fibre from uh, vegetables um, and then the other major source of fibre in our diet are cereals. Um, And we get about 19% of our fibre from uh, from cereals. But again, you've got to be fibre wise when you're thinking about which cereals to eat. We're not saying Cocoa Pops guys, as much as the odd bowl may taste gorgeous. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> That's absolutely right. So, um, so just as a, as an example, um, a, a sort of whole grain starchy food like um, 
uh, wholemeal spaghetti or brown rice or uh, a potato where you keep the skin on. Mm. Again, they vary widely, but on average, a portion um, of one of those will contain about five grams of fibre. Okay. So, you know, you know, you have some wholemeal spaghetti or some brown rice or a potato with the skin on and you're getting five grams. That's great. Plus your portions of veg. Hopefully you've got at least 10 or 15. That's right. But compare that if you had the the white, the you know, the processed versions of those. So white white spaghetti or white rice. Um, Bread. Uh, potato. Yeah, exactly. Mm you get about half the amount of fibre in there. So having wholemeal and brown versions of um, cereals and starchy foods is a really great way of doubling your fibre intake from that food. So I would really recommend people... When they're yeah. thinking about what cereals or starches to have, they're thinking about having whole grain ones. And think of a balanced plate. Too often I see people neglecting carbohydrates yeah. and it's very worrying. And of course, we've spoken about the type. But is it true that you can also tell a lot about your health through the types of bowel movements? You mentioned at the beginning, very in-depth detail that we don't talk about the type of poo. <laughs> what is the chart? I mean, is it the Bristol stool chart? It's the Bristol stool form scale. Can anyone look that up? Yeah, if you type that into a, yeah. a search engine on the internet, then you... you you'd absolutely find a picture of that. And it shows you seven different um, consistencies of stool um, from one to seven. So Great. with one being really quite uh, hard and firm and constipated mm. and seven being like water. And the goal is to be between three and five. So okay. three, four and five are the good ones to go for. I, I feel a challenge coming on for our <laughs> listeners now. I, everyone, I want you to have a little Google of the Bristol store chart. You can tweet me and Kevin. Let yeah. us know. <laughs> yeah, let us know what you're, what you're doing and what how your, your diet's is. affecting that. <laughs> um also, I think a lot of listeners might want to know about certain conditions. So I know a lot of people nowadays are experiencing quite debilitating um, conditions to do with their bowels. So, for instance, I- IBS is on the rise mm-hmm. as well, irritable bowel syndrome, IBD on the other flip side, which is very different, but irritable bowel diseases. Could you delve into a few of these? Yeah. So um, let's well, let's start with one of the most common bowel disorders is something that we think is quite benign, but actually really can impact on people and that's constipation so yes 14% of people uh, uh, fulfill the criteria for constipation so you know walking around what is the criteria for constipation so um, wow really complex question (laughs) so there's a there's a a variety of um, different characteristics that can mean you have constipation Mm. Um, and that can be around uh, low stool frequency or very hard stool consistency but it also can mean you know the requirement to take laxatives or um, you know the requirement to do other sorts of things to help you go to the loo Mm. Um, and so all if you have two or more of these characteristics then you've probably got constipation we've done research though which shows that loads of people don't realize they've got constipation when they actually do Mm. um but that's you know at the end of the day if it's not affecting your life too much then you know there's not too much well we see a lot of it in clinic and i worry because people jump to laxatives very quickly before addressing the dietary needs i'm sure you see a lot of that as well absolutely and there are loads of things you can do about something like Mm. constipation using your diet so Certainly the first thing to look at is fibre intake. Yeah. So we know that people um, uh, respond very well to fibre if they uh, have constipation. So we've done studies where we um, supplement people with fibre and it impacts their transit time, so the speed that um, uh, food moves through the gut. Um, And we know that fibre speeds up uh, that and therefore you get a larger stool easier to pass um, and therefore you get rid of your constipation so fiber is a quite effective way of doing it but not just fiber all sorts of things so we know that things like prunes and and things like that you know that's not a wives tale that's not that's not an old wives tale i love a prune (laughs) (laughs) that's not a wives tale at all because it contains fiber but it also contains um something called sorbitol and sorbitol helps water leak into the gut and therefore makes the stool a lot softer and easier to pass as well i actually remember attending a lecture of yours where you spoke about that actually it's all coming back to me now but obviously fiber in some cases may be a more tricky thing to digest mm. yeah so let's for example you you mentioned irritable bowel syndrome mm. and, and here there is a real challenge in order to being able to look after your bowel health 
um, whilst being able to not have symptoms of irritable bowel syndrome. So um, irritable bowel syndrome uh, means that you get uh, an alteration in your stool output, so you either get constipation or diarrhoea, but you also have abdominal pain as well. So, mm-hmm. you know, really, really awful cramping pain that can really impact people's lives yeah, and make, make, you know, make it really, really uncomfortable for people. Mm. Um, and the problem is, is that um, one aspect of diet that contributes to that is um, fermentable um, carbohydrates mm. in the diet producing gas. Now, when anybody in the world eats fermentable carbohydrates, we all produce gas um, and we all produce about the same amount of gas. Mm. But what happens if you have IBS is that um, you get really sensitive to that gas. You're not, you know, you, you feel pain when you when you have that amount of gas in you in a way that somebody without IBS wouldn't. Yeah. So in people like this, we, we need to maximise their fibre intake for their bowel health, for their gut health, but also trying to reduce the amount of gas being produced. Yeah, and I tend to find with um, IBS as well, there's a lot of lifestyle factors there that I don't, I think our modern environment is just horrendous. <laughs> The stress, the types of clothing we wear, we sit more, we don't move. There's so many factors, aren't there? I absolutely agree. And you yeah. mentioned stress, and I think that's such an important one. Mm. Um, and, you know, uh, any, any listeners out there who suffer from irritable bowel syndrome, you know, one of the first things I would say to a patient is, you know, look at how stress impacts your symptoms and look at ways you can do to relax more. And Because um, some people, I think stress, and I find it in the clinic, they're not aware they're stressed because yeah. they're so used to their norm being stressful. So it's once you identify that factor, I find it can help. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. Here's a cool fact. A crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Another cool fact, you can get short-term health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans are designed for people who are between jobs, coming off their parents' plan, or turning a side hustle into a full-time gig. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. Get more cool facts about United Healthcare short-term plans at uh1.com. Oh, but you've mentioned obviously the types of fiber and which periods of time are best to consume them. I often hear that clients say that they've been referred to their GP and the GPs just sent them away saying go on a FODMAP diet, but maybe without supervision. Mm-hmm. Could you explain what FODMAP is and why it's important to be supervised? So I just talked about fermentable carbohydrates Mm. that produce gas, and that's exactly what FODMAPs is all about. So FODMAPs um, is a... a a really sh- nice short abbreviation for a really a very long, <laughs> complex sentence. You can say it, Kevin. It's um, fermentable <laughs> oligosaccharides, disaccharides, monosaccharides, and polyols. Yeah. Um, so hence why it's much easier to talk about FODMAPs. Yes. Um, so what these are are things like the oligosaccharides. So these are fructans that are in wheat and garlic and onion Um other oligosaccharides called the galacto-oligosaccharides, which are in peas and beans and lentils. Disaccharides like lactose are in dairy products. Yeah. Monosaccharides is fructose, where there's excessive amounts of fructose. Um, and polyols, these are like the sorbitol that I was talking mm, about prunes. earlier in, in prunes. And so all of these have different effects on the gut. So some of them 
cause extra water to um, move into the gut, so particularly fructose, so things like apples uh, have lots of fructose in them and therefore call, cause water to um, enter into the bowel, which obviously if you if you have diarrhoea and IBS is not great. Mm-hmm. Um, but then there are other um, FODMAPs, so particularly the oligosaccharides and the fructans, which produce excessive amounts of gas in the gut Um, and therefore if you're sensitive to gas in your gut then you'll feel pain Um, and therefore that's what the whole aspect of the low FODMAP diet is about is about cutting out these um, different fermentable these gassy carbohydrates in order that you can uh, manage your symptoms. I mean that's incredibly complex for anyone to be sent to a sheet of paper I think to deal with themselves. For sure absolutely and we would never recommend that 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 be done but we do know we've done some work um, discussing with patients, discussing with GPs, discussing with dietitians and nutritionists. Um, and we know that this is happening mm. and we know it's not an effective way to do it. No. And it's not just not effective, it, it's potentially dangerous because the diet is really, really challenging to follow. You have to cut out yeah. lots of different carbohydrates, you have to cut out dairy products, you have to cut out lots of different vegetables. Components of meals you'd never even think of. That's right. Um, and and you have to do that. And the problem is you do you, you, do that for a certain length of time, you restrict them for a certain length of time, and then you add them back into your diet really slowly. And what we find happening is that people aren't adding them back into their diet no. because they've just been handed a one-page sheet um, And sheet they develop paper. a phobia, I find, in my clinic and a poor relationship with food. Yeah, that's right. And that's the opposite of what we want. We want people with IBS to be able to have a healthy diet within their restrictions mm. of, of what they can, they can eat. A hundred percent. I think I'm also seeing a big rise in people self-diagnosing various intolerances and mm. Mm-hmm. thinking they're allergic when obviously an allergy is quite a severe mm-hmm. reaction. Have you found that we have a genuine way of testing for these things yet? So testing for allergy, absolutely yes, yes because because that is a um, because food allergies are a um, they're mediated by the immune system. Mm-hmm. We can measure things in your blood and, and things like that uh, that you can def- definitively diagnose an allergy. And intolerance is very different because it's not mediated no. by the immune system. Mm-hmm. And so what you're relying on is somebody eating something and it causing symptoms. Mm. Now that's where the problem is. Because um, what we see quite a lot of is somebody eats, uh, you know, a bowl of cheesy pasta and then they get symptoms and they're like, wow, I'm 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 intolerant to gluten, for example. And I'm like, "Okay, maybe you're intolerant to gluten, but there are other things in that meal you might be intolerant to. You might be intolerant to the fructans in Mm -hmm. the pasta. You might be intolerant to the, you might be lactose intolerant to the, the cheesy sauce. Um, you could have had a very bad, unusual day and your digestion wouldn't have handled anything you would eat. <laughs> exactly. Um, and and yeah. not just that, but um, some people eat something and then 20 minutes later are, are, are feeling like bowel problems lower down. Mm. It's very unlikely that, that it that would happen quick. that quickly. So you might be associating the wrong thing. Mm. In fact, we talk, we talk, in, in, in nutrition, we talk of something called the nocebo effect, which is kind of like the opposite of a placebo effect. Mm. It's that you, you, you eat something and you're anticipating that this is going to cause you a yeah. problem. And guess what happens? It causes a problem. problem. Um, the mind is a clever thing, exactly, isn't it? Very exactly. It's warning thing. you away from that food. So, it is. So that's the real problem of diagnosing mm. a food intolerance um, compared to a to, compared to a food allergy. Yeah, and I think a big warning that these test kits out there that you can pay hundreds and hundreds of pounds for, they're not 100% accurate, are of they? Of course they're not. And and, and also, you, you buy those independently, but then what? You know, so yeah. do I cut that out of my diet? Is my diet nutritionally sound as a result? of that am I able to enjoy my life cutting out all dairy foods um, and so you know you know I really would encourage people to see a registered dietitian a registered nutritionist about these um, when that when they're really really making drastic changes no, to, their, agree more. Um, to their I mean, diet. you could be lactose intolerant but deal with varying types of lactose mm-hmm. there's so many the spectrum's big isn't it mm-hmm. and what about bloating when does it become abnormal versus normal because what about when you're flying on a plane there's two questions there <laughs> how does air travel affect us and what about bloating <laughs> okay. two questions sorry two questions so, <laughs> so um, first of all um, about bloating yeah um, um, so um, when does it when does bloating become harmful? Well, um, if you read scientific journals, we know that if you have bloating more than two days a week, um, then that is that is a that means you are diagnosed with functional bloating. Um, 
Um, but probably what's more relevant to people is how much bother that is causing yeah. to your life. You know, so if you get bloated, but it's not painful and it doesn't bother you and you can still eat what you want. So what? And I think most people do. Yeah, yeah, that's yeah. fine. And, you know, it, bloating might actually just be a sign of eating plenty of fibre and that's yes. no bad thing. <laughs> no. So it's when bloating becomes rogue, you know, it's when it it's when it's causing you a problem in your life. And I think that's the thing we Pain need to keep as an well, eye on. Sometimes, yeah. yeah. What happens when you go on a flight? Yes. Um, so um, remember that air pressure changes when you're on a flight. Um, and so what can happen is that you um, the gas in your gut changes volume a little bit. Um, so in the same way that um, some people slightly get a headache because they mm. need to pop their ears. Oh yeah. Um, so that's because of the air trapped in your ear canal. Well, can you imagine? what happens in your gut it's exactly the the same thing and so um, people need to normalize the air pressure in their bowel and we do that just by passing wind yeah Um, yeah (laughs) um, so yeah so that's quite important to do make sure you don't stop yourself from passing wind but it's so interesting because I often think about aeroplane food often containing more salt as well Mm -hmm. and different things and people not drinking enough it's like one big combination for poor gut health flying (laughs) on a plane isn't it it's not great it is but you know um, it's that's okay if, yeah. if you're flying once every three months or, yeah. or something. If you're a pilot or um, an, air an air steward or an air yeah. stewardess, then that and you're flying all the time. I, I think that's really interesting. And you know what? I don't just think it's about food on the plane no. or drinks on the plane. Um, I suspect there is an effect of um, the circadian rhythm mm. in the gut as well. And you know, this is a really under-researched area that... Um, um, that you might have to start a health. study, Kevin. I would love to do that. You mean, I'd get to fly to lots of <laughs> really would. nice places, maybe. Um, and um, that, you know, you were disrupting our bowel um, yeah. by, by flying to different time zones. But really importantly, our bowel goes to sleep when we go to sleep. Um, so it's very rare, for example, for you to want to get up in the middle of the night to no. want to go for a poo. No. And in fact, if you do, that's often a sign that something's wrong. So I'd, if, if, if listeners are going yeah, for a poo in the yeah, middle yeah. of the night, I'd, I'd go and speak to you. GP yeah. about that um, and so our bowel goes to sleep when when we're asleep um, and actually the most common time to go to the toilet is between 7 p.m uh, sorry 7 a.m yeah. and 8 a.m in the morning because yeah. it's when people wake up their bowel also wakes up plus They've probably had a coffee and, a, and 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 breakfast, and it's stimulating stuff to move. Gosh, through. it just goes to show everything is so interlinked. We're always <laughs> talking about that on the podcast. And a good example of I think how overdoing it can also cause a lot of stress was it was Paula Radcliffe when she was running. What marathon was she running? Or some yeah. crazy thing? But she had to keep stopping, saying she had a runner's diarrhea. Yeah, that's right. And yeah. is that because of the stress then on the body? And yes, it is because um, your bowel is. Um, it's it's plumbed into all of your um, blood circulation mm-hmm. system, and at all times. So you and I sat down here now chatting. Um, um, our, our our blood system is 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 washing all around our gut, taking all the nutrients um, away, um, and um, and that happens all the time. If you're an athlete and you are exercising for extended periods of time, mm. actually blood is being diverted away from your yeah. gut. So it's being it's going to your brain so that you can think. It's moving to your um, legs to make you run or it's moving to your shoulders to make you swim or whatever. Um, and so what happens is it's diverting it away from the bowel. Mm. And what happens in, in, in um, marathon runners is that they can actually get a lot of inflammation because there's not enough blood circulating around their bowel. And that's what happens in time like this everything just makes a lot of sense so what would be your top tips to our listeners then to improve their gut health Kevin? okay so number one is exactly what i've said about fiber yes. is that um you should um eat your 30 grams of fiber a day get it from a variety of different sources say variety yeah. definitely i mean you know you could say this about almost every single nutrient you you get fiber from a variety of different sources making sure that you're not having the same type of fiber all the time the same five vegetables every week that's right so try and make a diverse group of vegetables diverse fruit diverse um, cereals and you'll be getting you'll be getting your 30 grams per day and there'll be different types of fibers so you'll be doing different things in mm. your body so that would be my my you know my number one um, recommendation. Other things I would do to improve your um, gut health is consider your gut microbiome um, in addition. And so that might mean for some people taking a probiotic mm-hmm. supplement. So probiotics are the live um 
bacterial supplements and you know you can get them in health food shops in yeah. sachets and and tablets yeah you can get them in the chiller cabinet in there are so many varieties milk. now there are loads around you know 20 years ago when i started researching um this area you, there were like one or two on the market wow. and that's all you could get and times have changed so much you can get that's loads incredible. of different things so you could think about a probiotic you could think about a prebiotic so yeah. A prebiotic is um, something in your diet that um, helps the bacteria that are already in your mm. bowel because it feeds them specifically. Um, and so these are things like some of the fructans I've talked about. Yes. And they're supplements that um, you, c- you can buy in a health food shop. Finally, the other way of helping your microbiome is through things like fermented foods. Yes, yeah, definitely. So things like kefir, kombucha yep. and things like this. Miso. Yeah, miso, miso, kimchi yeah. and things like that. Now, we've recently done a review of these areas um, and um, there are very few studies showing the health benefits hmm. of these sorts of things. Now, that doesn't mean that they aren't good for us it means that really so far very little research has been done so we really want to do some really good research studies to investigate whether actually taking kefir taking kombucha can can have some uh, oh, health effects on your bowel and, and even beyond. the way we eat maybe on mindful eating and more studies there as well you know the way we eat has changed so much. Uh, when yeah. I think back to uh, when I was young, um, yeah, I'm not going too. to I'm not going to estimate when what decade. Don't worry, that I won't was. ask you. Uh, good, good. <laughs> um, so um, when I was young, I would sit uh, when when I had supper or, or my lunch. We would sit around a table and we, there would be no television on, um, and we would talk as a family. Um, and um, I think lots of people don't eat in that way anymore. No. I see colleagues, I see students sat at their desk um, on a computer while they're eating a sandwich, often rushing when they're eating as well. There seems to be no time in this country for lunch breaks. Yeah. You know, I'm going to challenge that. Good. I, I'm, I'm, Good. I'm not sure that's true. I'm, I think we need to prioritise food we in do. our lives. We're workaholics. Yeah, absolutely. And, and you know, I think it's about time we started saying, I'm going to take half an hour and I'm going to sit with my colleagues and, 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 and I'm going to be social while I eat. You know, food is something we should really, really celebrate. Oh, we it, encourage in the Retrition team <laughs> that we do enjoy our lunch breaks. <laughs> that is one thing I agree with you there on, definitely. And one last question before we take questions from listeners is what about these transplants i'm hearing about kevin what's the latest <laughs> okay so i think i imagine you're talking about fmt or fecal microbiota yes, transplants so that's obviously where you take um the the gut microbiome from someone else and it's then infused into your own gut mm. so what that basically means is taking someone else's stool and then under medical supervision and I think that's really important is then having it inserted into, in, into your own bowel and it's crucial that that's under medical supervision and I think it's really important. I've heard horror stories about home fecal microbiota oh transplants. No. Absolutely. Where you can buy these kits on the internet and you, you the share DIY. a stool. Yeah, absolutely. Under no circumstances should listeners consider doing that. Oh no. If you really, really um, think you might need that, then you, you, you need to speak to your doctor about it. There are some um, conditions for which there's actually really good evidence for faecal microbiota transplant. And, and the one with really good evidence is something called Clostridium difficile infection. Um, and Clostridium difficile is one of these superbugs. If you get an infection with Clostridium difficile, um, you have really, really profuse diarrhea that you can't get rid of. Mm. Antibiotics might treat it, it might go away, but then a month later, it will come back. So um, to stop that cycle of it coming back, there are really good clinical trials showing that faecal microbiota transplant will will stop that in its tracks. Wow, well, watch this space, That's I think, right. on that subject. So <laughs> uh, thank you for your time, Kevin, because we've covered so much. There's so much more I want to ask oh, you, but I need to let our listeners have a turn. <laughs> um, so Helen has asked, um, or rather she's stated, that in the past I've tried following a keto diet. Would this have had any impact on my gut health? Okay, so a keto diet, like a really high-protein diet, mm. um, and the answer is it completely depends because on on one level um, a keto diet might only contain beef for example mm. somebody might um, be really really extreme and not vary their diet or whatever um, 
But other people who are following a keto diet um, might might try to have a really, really balanced diet. Um, and so the answer is it's a, it's impossible to tell without knowing exactly what Helen was eating yeah. in order to be able to know whether it, it, it's had an effect or not. Like with everything. <laughs> That's right. The big challenge uh, with a keto diet, and some people I think can do it, but I think it's a challenge, is being able to eat enough fibre. Because if you go through um, where I said we get our fibre from, we get 20% of our fibre from vegetables, we get 90 percent of it from um, from cereals and of course you cut out often cut out a lot of these um, things when you're um, on a keto diet so yeah. I think that's my biggest concern as well as people's lack of fiber fruit vegetables all that kind yeah. of stuff as well and Joe has said um, oh actually I think we've answered this one I sometimes get constipated what can I do so I think Joe maybe rewind to the bit where we spoke about constipation absolutely there. loads of other things but so fiber that's looking at fiber things that contain lots of sorbitol mm. sorbitol prunes um apricots um you know stone Tom. fruits things like that Lovely. probiotics we know that um in general some probiotics can speed up your um transit time through your gut by 12 hours Great. Um, and and so that might be helpful for constipation we actually have a question on probiotics yeah. as well should i go estella said should i go for the one with the billions and zillions of bacteria <laughs> what do i do. <laughs> oh, I love this question yeah. because it's so complex to answer. Yeah. So, um, our bodies are built to stop bacteria passing through them. So uh, I bet listeners will be really surprised to hear that when you take a probiotic supplement, you're paying for all those billions of bacteria, but only between 5% and 0.1% of those bacteria actually survive through. Um, into your bowel. And so you might be thinking, well, I'm really short change then because I'm not getting my money's <laughs> worth. But if there are billions and billions and billions of them in there, then actually if only like 1% of them survive, that's still quite a lot. Mm. So on one level, you definitely need to go for high numbers. But actually, one that has, you know, medium numbers, but, you know, 5% of them survive then then that's a good one to take. Whereas if you take one with lots of numbers but 0.001% survive, yeah. then if they're all dying, it doesn't matter. There so really difficult. Always read the label. Yeah. Um, There's no harm the in numbers. trying, is there? That's Absolutely. The thing. Yeah. I mean, they're, a rare, they're rarely harmful. Mm. So try them for four weeks. If you feel any benefit, brilliant. If they don't, stop taking them. Yeah, very good advice. And the last one, Marcus has said... Oh, gosh, Marcus, it's so crude, but we're on the poo subjects <laughs> today. Is there a difference between smelly and normal farts? Um, OK, I've not studied um, the differences between no. smelly and normal ones. <laughs> I didn't think you had. <laughs> Sorry, it's your question. <laughs> but the um, the smell we get um, from the gas in our gut um, is all dependent on what we call volatile organic compounds. Mm. So like, you know, all the sorts of different uh, metabolites that come from um, fermenting our foods. Um, there's no evidence that really smelly ones are particularly harmful. Um, so I wouldn't worry. I mean, you know, just worry about the people around you and how comfortable they are. <laughs> <laughs> Such a good answer. And that moves me on to the best part, in my opinion, of the podcast, apart from all your lovely information, which is the fact or fiction round. Okay, are you ready? I'm nervous. Okay, so fact or fiction to the following questions. Pooing every day is required for good health. Fiction. Gluten is bad for our gut. Ooh. Okay, so for 1% of the po population who have celiac disease, yes. fact. Yes, exactly. And can, can we also, sorry, I'm ruining the, the fact or fiction <laughs> round. Leaky gut, is it a thing? So leaky gut refers to um, the ability of things to be able to pass through the gut that perhaps shouldn't be passing through mm -hmm. the gut and go, going into our um, bloodstream. Mm. Um, it's something that you can definitely get lots of tests for. I've seen them. Yeah, but some of those tests really are really not very um, good at telling whether you do have a leaky gut or not. We know that some people are at greater risk of having a leaky gut. So people with like inflammatory bowel mm. disease definitely have a more leaky gut than people without. We also know that some people with um, obesity, some people who are overweight might have a more leaky gut. Okay. But lots of people say, oh, I've been diagnosed with a leaky gut. I hear gut. it all the time. Do you really? Mm. Yeah. And, and, and two questions is, do you really have a leaky gut? And... How might we go about correcting that? And we just do not know the answer to there those two go. questions. Thank you for clarifying that, Kevin. Back to it. We should all be eating fermented foods. Fiction. Oh, oh no, I thought you were going to say 
Sorry, sorry. So I guess it depends on the individual. It depends on the individual. Of course it does. Organic food is better for our gut. Fiction. Most women have IBS. Absolute fiction. <laughs> Sugar is a toxin for the gut. <laughs> oh. <laughs> Oh, it's so difficult because there are so many shades of grey in this. But if you're going to force me, I'm going to say fiction. Kombucha is a really healthy drink. Fact. If your poo isn't solid, there's something wrong. <sighs> Fact. Um, tight clothing affects digestion. Mm, fiction. Bloating is normal. Fact. Well done. That was a brilliant <laughs> fact or fiction round. It's so hard being an academic and having oh, yeah. a fact or fiction. <laughs> My entire life is dealing with shades of grey and of the course. nuances and, and then being asked to just say one or the other is really tough. And portraying it in the media where they definitely <laughs> want you to say one That's thing. Right. So that nearly wraps up this entire episode, Kevin. But as with every guest, we finish with a food for thought. So mine today is that we're often distracted by what's going on around us and so much so that we're not really truly present in the world that we live in. Our nutrition, in my opinion, deserves at least equal thought and consideration as well as the other many chores that we complete each day. And I admit this is a challenge. I too have to stop myself from rushing my food while working away at my desk or while I've just walked through the door at the end of the day. It's often the first thing I want to go towards. But I also try and remind my clients that the food we eat has to undergo a very complex biological process in the body. And this takes time and involves a lot more interactions than a simple mouth to stomach pathway. Even if you consume the healthiest of diets, if your digestion isn't working optimally, any nutrition just won't be put to good use and sadly you won't see all of those potential benefits. So as Kevin and I have discussed today, good digestion starts with taking time to eat properly and mindfully. And as we've discussed as well, it's so important to eat a wide variety of food, as well as to ensure that we get that recommended 30 grams of fibre in our diets every day. So, Kevin, if I could ask you to share, putting you on the spot, but one thing that you think everyone could really benefit from today, what would that be? So, um, it would be around... Um, not just focusing on food as a source of nutrition. Um, in society, we've, we've just become so um, alert about the potential health benefits or health harms of different foods. And we're starting to see food as this toxin or this um, health uh, nirvana. And I really, like, partly I love the fact that people are much more attuned now to what's in foods and what health benefits um, it might have. But I'd, I'd like to encourage listeners to see food, to be a bit more traditional about how they see food. See food and eating as an opportunity to spend time with uh, friends and with family, to see food as an opportunity to socialise, to see food as an opportunity to experience different cultures, to see food as a time to just step out of your um, busy work life um, and just to have time um, on your own. So nutrition is really, really important, but I think food... Has, uh, is like a real gift that we've got in our life. And, and why I got into nutrition is because, is because food is a really, really positive part of my life. Oh, I can see your passion. And, you know, when you were sharing your food for thought, I mean, that was beautiful. I kind of had this vision of a family around a Sunday roast, yeah. <laughs> like all these wonderful memories and thoughts. Kevin, thank you so much for taking the time to be on the podcast today. Thank you. Thank you so much for listening to Food for Thought. It really is amazing to know there's such a craving to hear from expert voices in a world full of confusing advice. If you enjoyed this episode, you will absolutely love what's coming next week. So please make sure you click subscribe to be the first to hear it. And please, if you have time, do leave a five-star review. It really does help to get our podcast out there to reach higher highs in the charts and hopefully help more and more people. For more information about my nutrition clinic, books, healthy recipes, events, retreats, and so much more, please visit retrition.com and follow me at Retrition on Instagram, Twitter, Facebook, and YouTube. Hold up. What was that? 
boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello, fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello? Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com.